It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to Secure Ranch Podcast. Uh, this is Lokesh. You guys know me pretty well. Um, I have uh, Dave here with me today, uh, Dave Ruger. Um, Dave has been a multi-time CIO, um, CTO, multi-time CTO, multi-time CISO. Um, most notably, um, he's been a CISO of RMS Risk Management Solutions. Uh, for those of you who don't know uh, who RMS is, they're um, a disaster risk management um, company. He has also been uh, a CISO for uh, for companies like Excelion. Um, he has worked with a variety of customers, um, you know, uh, through his uh, previous gigs as a CISO. Um, currently, as we speak, he's on. He's moving on to his new assignment. <laughs> Uh, with with a new company, and I'm going to let him uh, talk, you know, more about that. Uh, you know, without further ado, uh, Dave, um, would you like to add more to that? Sure, sure. Thanks, Lokesh. Yeah, I, I will say, uh, I guess I'm I'm one of those um, seasoned CISOs. Uh, I actually started my career doing support, so you know, I went from support to consulting to running my own business to then kind of doing more of the uh, the security focus, uh, which has been kind of the bread and butter for me for the past, uh, geez, 20 plus years. So, um, <clears throat> yeah. And, uh, and as you mentioned, I, I just recently ended my, uh, my tenure at RMS as both the combined CISO and CIO, uh, which I would tell everyone is not for the faint of heart uh, and uh, probably is not recommended, but, you know, it works for a period of time. Uh, and, uh, and next week I'll be starting as the CISO for Invitae. They do, uh, genetic testing. So, you know, as we talk about kind of some of the topics today, this will be a new vertical for me in kind of the healthcare space and some of the other challenges that are, uh, are going to come with that. So, uh, very much looking forward to it and, uh, thanks for having me. Oh, thank you, Dave. Uh, thanks for, uh, thanks for adding to my introduction. So, um, Without waiting further, um, I would like to start with uh, topics of discussion, um, and and I'm pretty sure this will be very interesting um, topics, and will be very interesting with you when we add your perspective to these topics, right? Um, and my first, um, you know, uh, I don't want to say questions. I would like to say topics rather, right? Um, you've been a technology leader, right? Um, and security leader in various verticals, you know, over your um, 25 years of your career, right? Uh, how do the challenges that come along with being a technology and security leader differ when it comes to various verticals? Like you were a uh, mm -hmm. technology and security leader for, you know, disaster risk management company, RMS, um, for a technology company, and now you're, you're, you know, you're stepping into a different vertical, Right. Um, how how does one you know uh, tackle the challenges given the different verticals? Yeah, you know, I mean, <clears throat> it's an interesting thing when you think about kind of the progression of technology over the past several decades. Um, you know, I'll start by saying there's a lot of commonalities, right? So when I had my own company um, back in the late '90s. We were working with companies like Hewlett Packard, Toshiba, Equifax, doing customer data acquisition. And, uh, and our entire platform that I built 
was all about securing data at a time, quite honestly, in the United States where no one really cared about privacy that much. I mean, we could barely do anything about spam, if you can believe that. So, um, <clears throat> but I was working with HP at the late 90s. And of course, they had uh, a need to secure data because this was personally identifiable information. Uh, for all of their customers in their inkjet printer lines. So, you know, if any of you bought an inkjet printer in the late 90s through the most of the 2000s, you were touching my technology when you were doing the product registration experience. So um, <clears throat> it became clear to me at that time that uh, security was really important because this was all of our personal information. And of course, you had the EU data directive from 1995 that we had to be compliant with because HP was in 83 countries, we were doing 22 languages. So, you know, obviously I needed to be really on top of securing that data. So, you know, I developed a custom protocol and, and, and that was kind of my foray into security in general. What I've seen over the years in the various verticals is that there's the, that thread of, of securing data never changes. It's just, what are the downstream impacts of getting it wrong? Right. So when you think about um, like the company that I had, uh, you're talking about EU data directive and potentially GDPR, which is what that uh, became eventually. But when you're talking about healthcare, you know, you have different requirements. There's HIPAA, you know, there's high trust uh, in terms of frameworks that you have to, to align to. Whereas with RMS, it was really more about the GDPR privacy compliance, as well as things like SOC 2, ISO 27001 and whatnot. So I think the programs can be very similar, but the nuances of, of scope, right? Like what is the data that you're dealing with? How do you have to approach protecting that data does change slightly given the, um, the regulatory need or lack of need. Like in some businesses, you, you don't really have a regulatory need, but certainly from the standpoint of um, you know, good data protection and good security, you have downstream impacts by things like uh, CCPA, which is going to be the CCRA or CP, C, CPRA here before too long, where it's like, if you're doing business in California, you're going to be in trouble if you don't put protections around your data and someone complains because you didn't give them the ability to uh, uh, delete that data or say, I don't want it to be used in, in other kind of downstream transactions. So, uh, you know, the nuance for us as CISOs is basically, you know, trying to stay abreast of all this stuff is a pretty daunting task. Um, but at the end of the day, a lot of the, the common controls are going to be very similar across the various verticals. It's just mostly the things around, you know, what you need to be compliant with that will change over time. For sure. Um, on the same topic, um, were you, I mean, did you see any specific unique challenges to that? Like, for example, um, the way you mitigated security risks um, in technology versus, um, you know, the way you mitigated technology risks, uh, not technology risks, security risks um, for, a, for a non-technology company, right? Mm -hmm. Was there a significant difference in approach, the way you approached, um, you know, in mitigating security risks? Well, I mean, for most of my career, I've been dealing with technology and software in some capacity. However, uh, when I was heading up uh, the, the operations for Maxim Integrated, which is a semiconductor, um, the challenges there are really more around the business model. Right. So this is a, it's very common with the semiconductors to have really old equipment um, and it's kind of by design. Right. When you think about, I think one of the flagship products that uh, Maxim had created uh, went all the way back to the 80s. So you had equipment that no kidding was 25, 30 years old, fully capitalized and continuing to crank out chips all day long. Well, uh, a lot of these pieces of equipment were running really old um, technology for the console. Like uh, uh, they have an embedded XP, for example, and some of the oscilloscopes that they use for testing, again, embedded XP. So what happens? Someone puts a USB in, into the network and boom, you've got things like Conficker that are going all over the place. Um, 
but it's kind of you know a unique situation where you're not going to upgrade the console because there's no upgrade path right it is what it is and then you also have situations where there are pockets of risk in the network and it's by design it's this legacy environment where it's creating a lot of good business value but it's also representing a lot of huge security and data risk so those types of challenges i think um you know create opportunities for us to rethink what does it mean to have good security and good hygiene right in some cases everyone will kind of come out and say well you better do patching yeah well what do you do when you have an environment that you can't patch it's like physically impossible um so now you have to do sort of the administrative controls. You better have a really good RBAC policy. You better have network segmentation. Maybe you do have something um, where you've completely cordoned off a, a physical area. It's like there's no in and out except through that door. Well, you apply the same concept with your networking and your system access. And, and that's, I think, an opportunity for us to rethink, you know, what does it mean to, to be agile? with your security program, but yet, um, you know, fulfill the business need without introducing additional risk by doing so. Yeah, for sure. Um, I wish I could ask more um, on the same topic, uh, given... given, given, (laughs) Well, you can. It's your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Given, given, uh, you know, give how interesting the response was, um, but... But I would like to, you know, go off of more, um, you know, different variety of topics um, instead of talking about, you know, the same um, topic, right? Um, so the next one, the next topic I had was um, we have all relatively like five years ago, if you look at five years ago, uh, the amount of technologies that were available back five years ago compared to what we have today to mitigate security risks we have like hundreds and thousands of them, right? It has completely gone ballistic, right? Yet, yet the data breaches have not gone down, have exponentially, they have exponentially increased or it has gotten so worse that, you know, you can't, you can't even look at a day or, you know, look, look at a day that, that, that doesn't pass without having some sort of a, a data breach. Or, or an hour, not a day or an hour, yeah. I would I should say sure. probably at this point, right? <laughs> so is will we ever see a, a trend or, or, or a period of time when security breaches will go down in general? I doubt it. You know, I mean, we're, we're at that inflection point when it comes to um, information proliferation. Right. Um, I think it, it, when I started my company at the end of the 90s, we were seeing, you know, the, the huge influx of uh, adoption of the Internet. Right. At the time, in the protocol that I developed, about 60 percent of our traffic was over modem dial up and then 40 percent was TCP IP. Um, within three years, that changed to the exact opposite. 40% was dial-up and then 60% was TCP. And then within five years, everything was TCP. So that, that just shows you the speed at which kind of, you know, the, the impact of the internet um, really permeated everything that we do. And then, of course, in, you know, the, the 2000s, you had the advent of the iPhone, which then created this whole problem with mobility. And now we're seeing this huge data problem, which is everywhere is talking to everything all the time, right? So it's just creating more of an opportunity for data proliferation, data aggregation. You know, we have analytics platforms now being built on top of analytics platforms with data lakes of data lakes. And at some point, we're going to create so much data volume that, you know, what will the definition of breach be moving forward? I mean, is it it going to be the fact that you walked into a place that has something that detected that you're there and then it, um, you know, mistakenly sent that packet off to another monitoring uh, system in a country that it's not supposed to. And now someone finds out about it and boom, you've got a security violation, which leads to a privacy violation. And all you did was enter a room. I mean, that's kind of the future that we're headed into. How do you put controls around that to manage your your threat landscape. I, I think in general, what's going to happen is, you know, we as security professionals, along with the governing bodies, 
need to do a better job of understanding what is it we're trying to control? Um, what is the nature of breach, right? I, I think one of the real dangers that I've seen as a result of the last decade uh, in, in the movement towards privacy is that, um, especially with the EU movement towards GDPR, you've seen this notion of giving rights back to people in a way that um, sort of has no bound, right? And now that's being replicated here in the U.S., it pre predominantly in California, but it's happening all across in every state. And, and what it's saying is that people should have the ability to control the flow of their data. I absolutely agree with that, right? And it was one of the founding principles of the company I had was to give you control over your profile data so that when companies wanted to market to you, you knew about it and it was permission. Right. Well, the problem is we, we didn't kind of build the internet and the, the whole proliferation of web services with that in mind. Quite the opposite. When everything right. was expanding, you had Netscape and Google and all these companies, Yahoo, that were basically saying, get your data for free. Get your information right. for free. The internet is awesome. And everyone went, cool. But then what happened? Well, the genie got out of the bottle because at that point, you know, these companies were like, well, someone's got to pay for this and you're going to pay for it by having eyeballs on all of this content right. and advertising space, right? Okay, right. So that, that really, I think, was the snowball that got out of control. And, and the problem that we're going to see moving forward is, you know, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? So how do you control the scope of what would constitute, you know, a, a verifiable breach scenario to just you know, someone who's upset about the fact that you're collecting data about them because they want your services, <laughs> right? And so, you know, there, there has to be a little give and take here. And I don't think that our governments have the right mindset or maybe they've just gotten the wrong advice, perhaps, um, to be able to address this problem in a reasoned way, right? There's always going to be that, that friction between convenience and you know business value and absolute security and if you look right. at the letter of the law for a lot of the things like gdpr they kind of skew more towards that absolute of the data security but then they put these you know really vague notions in place of like oh but if you have state-of-the-art security it's okay it's like well what does that mean <laughs> right <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, well, <laughs> well, hey, we will build. I mean, I was going to say uh, we'll not just build data lakes. We'll build data oceans, data walls. Yeah, <laughs> and, right. And we'll and we will live in data utopia, right? So, um, and 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 sorry, I kind of interrupted you. Uh, so, no, no. Uh, I mean, you're you're actually onto a good thread, which is you know when you have all of these data lakes, and now as we know, the human mind is only capable of processing so processing so much. So, what right. do we do? We create these algorithms and these programs, and this now we've got AI that to assist us to get value out of the data. Well, what's going to happen when the AI itself is actually processing data lakes of data lakes? To the point where now we've got a potential breach that's happening just by processing the data. I mean, that is a, a, a scenario that could play out in the future. Then who's responsible? Right. Right. I, I mean, I, I think what we are going to see in the next five to 10 years with the, the advent of a lot of these, you know, frankly, it's frightening technology when it comes to AI. You think about the right. deep take deep fake technology where you can take audio and you know superimpose it over video you can have video that actually has superimposed other video to make it look like someone is saying something they're not well what happens when ai is put into a, a effect by someone who's malicious that can actually use this at scale to proliferate across multiple cloud environments well, where did it originate? You, it may take you months to figure that out, right? Yep, yep. So I, I just think that our problem is going to get worse. And, and ultimately, what it's going to come down to is this notion of um, data provenance, right? Um, we're actually seeing signs of this now as a result of the last election cycle that the idea of misinformation and um, you know malicious disinformation that's designed to influence people at scale 
um, is all because there is no great provenance over data information. And until we get that, you're not going to have what we need even from the security standpoint, which is true attribution, right? When something bad happens, you want to be able to say it started here by this individual with this piece of data or this program, right? Until we get to a point where we can have that at scale across all of the data lakes that we're, we're you know, building and having computers build on our behalf, I think we're in real jeopardy as, as a civilization, quite honestly, of our ability to control that. I, I, you brought a lot of good points. And, uh, and on the same topic, I just wanted to say uh, maybe one or a couple or more things, right? Um, I think we're headed towards... Um, you know, we're, we're collecting or probably will be collecting too much data, um, which I think we'll be struggling to, uh, struggling to, uh, you know, um, do, you know, what to do with, right? And, you know, hey, am I, here's the thing, right? Uh, to find, you know, any, um, any possible, you know, malicious attempt, right? Do I need to look at 100 gigabytes of data or do I need to look at 500 gig of data? One terabyte, 500 terabytes, one petabyte. At what, at what point do I stop? And what, at what point do I think myself and say enough is enough? And I think this is the data I need to look at to make sensible decision, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? I, and, and, and what I'm seeing, and I think – you know, I just wanted to relay this, and I and and I think that will kind of uh, take us into the next topic, right? Uh, the matter of fact is, I'm seeing a lot of vendors. Uh, don't want to name names, but then a lot of vendors, security vendors, uh, quite honestly, obsessed with oh, we got we're going to do data lakes and we're going to collect a lot more data. Well, that's what we've been doing with SOC. With SOC, you're going to do all these, you know, additional responsibilities or additional capabilities with SOC where you're trying to collect more data. But then at what point do you think, you know, enough is enough when it comes to data? What do you think on that? Yeah. So what you're really talking about is, uh, you know, the the course that we've been put on is leading us to, to a true data getting. Right. right. I mean, we, we just have we have so much data that we're we're accumulating and proliferating. Now, the question is, what's important in that right. data? Because there's potentially a lot of noise. Right. Right. And that's why I think we're also seeing a lot of, uh, you know, this this evolution of uh, detection tools. Right. There's tons of AI that's being put on top of that because AI is good at finding patterns. Right. But end of the day, these algorithms are only as good as the people who have built them or are tuning them, right? And I think this is always why there's going to be a need for, for really good people in security because so far, humans still have the, the upper hand in figuring out kind of, you know, the, the, the meaningful pattern, right? And once you've established what that is, you can train an algorithm to kind of replicate that. And then those algorithms will build on themselves and then they get better at it so that they can do it at scale, right? Our problem is, you know, we, we have to sleep. <laughs> Computers don't. So doing things at scale on just massive data lakes of data lakes becomes a, an untenable problem for us to have to, have to solve. So I, I think the, the real issue is going to be um, are we going to get better about determining upfront what's noise and what's not, right? right? And, and, and the telemetry is what's creating all of this problem in the first place. We have IP addresses, we have unique identifiers, we've got, you know, anything at all that could kind of correlate back to something that is of meaning and of substance, right? And computers will do a great job of, of doing that very quickly, especially if it's well indexed or it's stored properly, um, the challenge is always going to be when you have huge data sets, especially in a cloud topology, um, the piece to get the value then has to sort of uh, evolve itself. And it's got to be re-architected and redesigned to take advantage of the fact that no single compute node is going to be able to do this in any reasonable amount of time. So the idea of distributed computing goes into the nth degree 
whereby we probably have this peer-to-peer opportunity where everyone's machine could just take a piece of the, the processing power for a particular problem state. This is kind of what um, the SETI project did back in the 90s, right? When they were looking at radio signals and trying to find if there was any sign of extraterrestrial life. What they did, they gave everyone a program and it was distributed across multiple individual nodes in a peer-to-peer network. And everyone got a piece of that, uh, that signal data to try to process to get meaningful results. Well, guess what? we're probably going to be heading into that kind of an environment ourselves. Maybe at some point we'll see, uh, you know, one of these uh, endpoint solutions that actually has a little piece in the back end that's constantly processing outside data, which could create another set of challenges from a privacy standpoint. So again, right. it's just like this problem will never get easier. <laughs> right. I, I, I really hope we don't end up with uh, data diarrhea. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that 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 would be the, the worst case scenario, right? Data right. meets data diarrhea. Boom. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> that, that, yeah, I you know I really hope not. Um, so, moving on to the next one, I think it kind of you know um, it's um, related to what we just spoke. Um, you know, we were talking about you know how we have so many security technologies, uh, you know, so many security vendors to mitigate security risks, right? Um, is there any particular cyber domain area that you think is, uh, you know, it's, is, is overlooked? Like, for example, we have, when it comes to DevSecOps, we have ton of tools, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to Security Operations Center, we have ton of vendors, right? Uh, you know, when you take, governance, risk, and compliance, we have a ton of vendors, right? Uh, with that in mind, you know, which, which domain lacks disruption innovation? I, I personally feel like DevSecOps is given too much uh, focus while the others are not, are not as given as much focus as DevSecOps is given, right? I would say comparatively, mm-hmm. you have so many DevSecOps product vendors than other vendors, right? Uh, do you see any particular area with cyber domain that's not, you know, that's not really focused on? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've always been fascinated by this idea of um, um, deception, right? The deception technologies. And uh, there's a few companies that kind of do it with the network, um, you know, where they've got like honeypots or things that are kind of just living off the network. I don't know if there's anything that kind of exists in that domain on sort of the endpoint, right? Um, or at least to kind of replicate human behavior in a way that would be um, detectable, let's say. Uh, I, I think, you know, when, you, when you're talking about all of this telemetry, right? If, if I sort of flip the coin and start to think like an attacker, you know, what's the one thing that I need to do to make sure that I don't get caught? Well, I probably need to do a lot of like, you know, aberrant behavior that will throw the scent off of what I really want to do. Right. So maybe I start doing some, you, you know, innocuous command and control stuff to a place that I know is known bad just to kind of take the scent off. And now all of a sudden someone goes off in a different direction. Meanwhile, I've already done my lateral movement. I'm on the machine. No one's looking at. And now within, you know, a few minutes, I've got the data that I want and boom, off I go. Right. Um, that's always the nightmare scenario that I think about is like, we'll spend so much time following the signals that we know yield good results, right? Because they've got the right signatures. They're, they're going to places that we know are bad. They, they look like stuff we've seen before, but when you couple that with the stuff you haven't seen, that's the area where you have an opportunity to get owned. And, you know, when you think about a lot of the AI detections and stuff, and I remember working with uh, uh, ProtectWise years ago, and, and when they were first coming out, you know, we always used to talk about this idea of their correlation engine would actually look after the fact. It was one of the big selling points early on was they had a retroactive look back because they would start correlating things and then maybe a week or two weeks down the road, they finally found two or three signals that, that looked like something malicious that hadn't been seen before. That was a correlated event. Well, now 
I know that one person had it, but who else had it? So doing the look back would allow them to kind of go more into a, um, you know, a first state. It's almost like unra unraveling the Big Bang. Where was the victim one, right? And I think there's probably an, a market for companies to figure out how to close that window of getting to the, the zero day victim or the victim one um, by getting those correlated events that are seemingly disparate because an attacker is sophisticated enough to know how to game the tools that we're using to detect them. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's a good response, and I agree with that. Um, moving on to the next topic, right? Um, everyone's favorite word, and, and this is probably my favorite one of my favorite words too. Blockchain. Uh, yeah. It's it's uh, it's I think it's quite honestly uh, interchangeably used along with uh, AI, right? Blockchain is not necessarily AI, and AI is not you know blockchain and vice versa, right? Um, but that being said. You know, and and I'm pretty sure this response is this response is based on the verticals, right? Vertical, you're you're applying this, you know, um, problem to or you know the technology to. Uh, do you see um, blockchain improving security landscape in terms of transforming the business? It could be any vertical, technology or semiconductor uh, or healthcare. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure healthcare might be the last option where that might be using blockchain, but but who do you see? Where do you see? Do you see you know, blockchain transforming security landscape? Yeah, so I mean, it, it, it's an interesting question because I've been involved with blockchain for several years now, and you know, for for people that aren't like super familiar with it, a lot a lot of times people associate blockchain with cryptocurrency because they're kind of interchangeable in a way, but you know, <clears throat> blockchain itself is effectively just an immutable ledger, right? And it's distributed. So there's this whole idea of a consensus model, right? So when you think about that in, in its broad applications for security, I mean, the, the, the no-brainer for me is just in the, um, the certification space and the compliance space, right? When you're talking about getting uh, an ISO cert or some kind of an attestation, whether it be SOC 2, C5 or whatever, right? Um, it seems to me that there, there's an opportunity for a business to be built around a blockchain whereby the thing of value that you're trying to validate is, in fact, the report or the findings or, you know, whatever the outcome of a particular audit is. And, uh, and surprisingly, I haven't seen a lot of movement in that direction in that space for us as security leaders where there is kind of this blockchain back end that you could just go and verify individual reports in, in a very, um, you know, assurance of data integrity for the report itself. Not that I'm advocating that anyone would change the results of their reports, but it could happen, right? And, and unintentionally, and now all of a sudden, you know, your, your assurance is kind of broken because your results are not verifiable. That I think is a really good application of blockchain. But, you know, when you mentioned healthcare, that one's an interesting one because of things like HIPAA and, you know, the, the protection of content. I mean, again, it, you, you have to look at where does it make sense to use the blockchain? And, and I think this is where a lot of companies and potential entrepreneurs get, uh, get it wrong because, sure, the blockchain itself is just another database, but the very working of it is not optimized for large data storage. Right. So if you try to put things of value like, you know, an individual employee's record into a blockchain, I think that's a bad idea. Right. I mean, first of all, you have to replicate that data across multiple blockchains uh, that are going to be stored in a distributed topology. And let's face it, an, a person's uh, a, a company, their, their record of their uh, their health care changes over time because their body changes. Right. So why would you ever store that in a blockchain? But what you could store in the blockchain is the access, right? Right. You know, again, you want to think about this as a ledger. What's a ledger good at? Transactions. So what would be a verifiable transaction that you would want to have to be secured? Access to data, right? And that could be something that's widely applicable for all kinds of things. An employee record, right? Um, dare I say, 
uh, a vote, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, so, so you know, oh, from, that, that, that might be a strong word these days. <laughs> yeah, right? Tr trust me, I think there's a lot of people out there who'd be like, oh, well, who's going to control it? It's control. like, well, clearly you don't understand how the blockchain works. But... <laughs> right, right. No, you know, uh, yeah, you know, I was going to, you know, my, I was going to ask the next topic, and it kind of, you know, segues into what you just mentioned, right? Uh, and and who is going to control it, mm -hmm. right? And that's the point of blockchain, and that's what my next topic is. Uh, who's going to control it? And these days, uh, consumers don't want anyone to control it, right? Be it, yeah. be, it inter be it internet or privacy or anything for that matter, right? Uh, my topic is um, could could internet as a whole be fully decentralized, right? If it can be, will it will it help reduce data breaches? It could be security or privacy <laughs> data breaches. Wow. Uh, so that's a loaded question. Um, the answer is the internet could be decentralized. In fact, there's there's a few projects that have been trying to um, to do that. Uh, I think the one early on that I was involved in was uh, uh, was also a, a, a blockchain technology was uh, I think it was uh, SIA uh, has this notion of a distributed content for um, for their particular um, blockchain. Uh, the other one is Substratum. So they they've morphed into something new right now. I forget what it is, but but the idea was um, any individual computer node could be a server for content of of the internet in a highly decentralized way, much like you know back in the '90s when we had things like Napster and Kazaa that were distributing mostly media content, but you could also have files and whatnot. Um, it does it in a way that uh, effectively no central server owns the content. Therefore, what does it mean to breach, right? Right. So totally, totally valid idea is, is to have all of this to be distributed in a way whereby if you got a single node, you didn't get everything. You got a piece of it. And if you try to get all of the pieces, it, you know, you could have, a monitoring technology that would look at those behaviors. So again, when we talk about kind of meta layers of meta layers, if right. you can see the behavior of some of a node that's been compromised, now trying to go and do the same thing at other nodes in a distributed topology, you actually have enough reasonable assurance that something malicious is happening. So in that way, I think having a decentralized topology offers the ability to to potentially solve a big problem when it comes to data but then you have the, the even bigger problem from the monitoring standpoint which is do we have something that is powerful enough to see all the nodes at one time to be able to get that kind of telemetry i i don't know it's a really interesting idea i've thought about it in the past too especially with some of the um um, you know, the blockchain ideas that I've been percolating over the past several years. But this idea of having a distributed piece of content that has to be aggregated into a single piece of content to get real meaning is, I think, a central idea of peer-to-peer of -peer technologies for file sharing. Um, there's the, actually a friend of mine has a company that's taken a version of what started off as Napster and they built it into a secure file sharing technology, which is totally decentralized. So I know that there's there's companies that are currently looking at this as a way to solve the problem. But like you said, now that you've you've got that kind of secured data, how do you get the value on top of it to know that you know you could potentially be at risk of breach at scale, also in a highly distributed way? That just seems like an incrementally more difficult problem to solve. Yeah, if I were if I was a Texan, I would say, "Don't breach my brisket." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or don't breach my barbecue. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and then I would say, "Well, the problem is the sauce. You didn't have the right sauce." <laughs> <laughs> the, or, or the secret sauce for the yes, for that's the, right, the matter, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the, 
No, that's 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 very interesting, uh, Dave, and I appreciate that response. Um, so, what's the moving on to the next topic? What are the what are the top challenges? I know that you know we kind of spoke about that, you know, you know, in, in previous topics, um, but. Um, what do you think are the top challenges as a technology and security leader? You played both roles throughout mm-hmm. your career, right? Uh, you know, I'm asking from a perspective that what do you still see all these 20 years? And you're thinking to your, you're thinking to yourself, man, I've been in, I've been 20, 25 years. Nothing has changed. I'm seeing the same, same challenges all over again, right? The, the top ones, I know there are quite a few, but, but the top ones. Well, like I said, I, I think there's commonalities that are, are they're never going to change, you know, and what I've said with my programs and every single company I've been in, um, there's, there's three main things that you just have to go after if you want to make sure that you're not going to be the next headline. Um, <clears throat> the first one is just the, the whole like asset management piece, right? If you don't have a good understanding of what you have in your domain and, and knowing whether it's vulnerable, right, you're already at risk and you just don't know it, right? So there, there's, and, and that's a very loaded response because that it, there's a lot that goes into it. There's the visibility. So you got a monitoring, there's the, the patch management process, there's the vulnerability management process. I mean, that in and of itself, if you don't have a good program or a good story to tell in, in your existing company, that's a multi-year project in and of itself, right? Yep. So, so that would be the first one. The next one is going to be around sort of your vendor risk management, right? Because every company now is relying upon tons of third parties as we see this huge migration to cloud, right? Everyone wants to go put stuff up in Azure or Google or Amazon or whoever, right? And uh, you're putting a lot of faith in another company to have good security practice around, you know, things where you're going to have your data, right? Right. Uh, the one that people miss, though, is like it's the small stuff. Like I've got a contract agency that's coming in for three weeks to do a, a certain project. Well, guess what? That's how things like Stuxnet happen. They brought in a USB drive or, you know, a contractor comes in, they attach to the network and boom, you're infected, there you go. right? Infected, yep. So so having that good story to tell around third-party risk management, I think also gives us defensibility as security practitioners. We're never going to be 100% effective, but, you know, at least we'll have a good story to tell that we're, we're doing our due diligence. And then the last one really is just all about response, right? If you don't have a good security incident response program and you're not regularly testing it, I mean, like seriously, you're exploding malware, you're doing things like ransomware um, battles, battle testing, right? Um, that's your last bastion. However, whatever happens, however many gates that you have in your defense in-depth strategy, the one that fails is the one that you better be able to respond to as quickly as possible so that the window of opportunity is less than the breach opportunity, right? right if it right. takes an attacker 28 days uh, on average to get the data out, well, you better hope your incident response doesn't take 30 days, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, you know, and the other thing too, when we think about ransomware, that window of opportunity is incredibly small. So, right. you know, if you have a very flat network, like a lot of companies do, when they get in and it explodes, guess what happens? The entire network goes down within seconds, right? right. So, so I think that that's, that's a really important thing to do. And if you can have a, a team or, you know, a, a number of inside and outside organizations where you run these kinds of simulations regularly so that you can say, if we got hit with ransomware, we can fully contain within X number of seconds. That would be the ideal state. And we can have it fully remediated by blah because you've tested it. That is the best you're ever going to get. Yeah. And uh, and if you had one of those unpatched obsolete systems, all it takes, you know, you don't need any malware. All it takes is just a good old sneeze. Right? It's gone. It's gone with the wind. It's gone with the wind. (laughs) 
I, I used to joke because at one of my former companies, we um, <laughs> we were just scanning the network. Okay, you right. think this is simple. We did. We ran a, a right. scan of the network. It created so much traffic that it actually took down the main uh, egress port on the, the core switch because right. it had anti-hammering technology built into it, right? When it's all this, right. this flood of activity, it shut it down. Right. So I used to joke, I was like, well, you know, we don't have to worry about an insider threat. All you gotta do is scan the network. <laughs> <laughs> An attacker could take everything down, right? Exactly. So, you know, I mean, it's it's funny because sometimes, you know, we miss those things. We we get really detailed about, oh, no, it's about the data and we got to have this newfangled thing. And it's like, and something as simple as just running a port scan could create an opportunity to take out your business for a period of time. That's the stuff that you have to really kind of go, oh, wow. Well, yeah, we probably should yeah. think about that, too. <laughs> hey, uh, where's, where's, my, where's my data? Oh, is, is it your cloud or my cloud, right? So, yeah, right. <laughs> right what, so. and, then, and then it's like, well, what is cloud again? You know, this is, yeah. I mean, we're getting to the point, you know, back to your previous comment about, you know, with distributed technology, you know, there's going to be no such thing as like Amazon owns the cloud. You literally right. would have, no, we have 10,000 people distributed across the entire planet that have a piece of this data. That is our cloud. That's where we're headed. Right. 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 Uh, um, and, and, you know, you, you kind of brought up a very good, um, you know, um, point, which kind of helps me segue into a, different topic and i was going to talk about something else but uh now that you gave a response it kind of triggered some of the thoughts that i had right with everything going virtual from arts to crafts to cryptocurrencies to you know fiat currencies you name them right mm-hmm. is the same trend going to disrupt the corporate world right like for example you have some vendors offering Forget about security as a service. You have vendors offering network as a service, SD-WAN, and not just SD-WAN. I'm talking complete corporate network as a service. Or can we expect, are we going to expect more along those lines in the future where the entire corporate environment, everything, like, you know, you'll have a thick client. All you got to do is just launch the thick client. And boom, there you go. You're connected. Are we headed that that way? You know, uh, more and more as things progress. Well, I, I think the right answer is we should be right. right. Um, you know, it's it's kind of funny what the pandemic showed us in the past year is that, in a way, we're kind of going back to the future, right? So right. when I started in the early '90s, uh, you know, computing back then was all client server. Right. right. So your your client was a pretty thin client and most of the compute happened in the back end. Then the internet came along and everyone was like, no, 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 we can actually uh, distribute a lot of this stuff. And so now maybe we don't have thin clients. Maybe we have like some beefy applications running on the front end and then we'll just use the back end for services. Then the iPhone comes out and now we've got mobility services. And so now the notion of, of compute, a distributed compute is completely all over the map. Right. Right. And I think, you know, what the pandemic showed us is that um, actually centralizing compute services creates a business continuity problem. And we've always known this, right. But we, we try to contain it by having multiple data centers across the company footprint and then the idea is if you come into the network we can control that access there yeah well the pandemic basically blew that completely out of the water now instead of having i mean what does it mean to have a corporate network now everyone is remote right Right. so so i think the idea is you know thankfully for me it's like i've been pushing kind of the zero trust methodology for a long time and um with everyone working remotely, it just reinforced that now that's real. You have to basically approach every endpoint as adversarial. And if you're not, then, you know, you're creating risk for yourself and your corporate networks. But what then it really does is it forces you to rethink what is a trusted node, right? Right. Right. How do I know that this thing that's touching my data or this thing that's in my network has actually gone through a series of security gates? 
right? And there's ways right. to do it, right? You can have an IM technology that looks at host profiles that make sure that you have a baseline security check of, well, you better have this uh, anti-malware tool. You better have encryption on the disk and, you know, just name your poisons, right? Right, right. But end of the day, I, you know, I, I think the, this has set us on the path that's, that's outlining a bigger problem on the, on, on an infrastructure play, quite honestly, because if you want to go like true um, dumb client, right? You better have great network connectivity everywhere. Right. That is not a reality in the world right now. Certain pockets, yes, but you know, places like India, it's, it's very sporadic, right? Um, right? In the Philippines, it's, you know, it's a premium to get really good connect speeds. Right. So that's a problem. But what it will do is it'll allow companies to actually rethink what does it make sense for us to implement as a strategy for our protection scheme. Do we want to apply the same brush everywhere or do we want to say, okay, for this part of the world, because of the network connectivity issues, we will enforce this policy that says you have to have X, Y, and Z, um, or we'll do a BYOD strategy that says, we'll allow you to keep data on your endpoint, but it has to be in this container, right? right so right. now we kind of get a little bit of the best of both worlds. Whereas in places where you have kind of really good connectivity everywhere, you might be able to say, yeah, you know what? We're just going to give you a VDI. Bring whatever you want because you're never going to touch our, our networks unless you go through this gate. And then when you become an ex-employee, that gate goes away. So it's an interesting time for us right now to think about what the future holds because distributed computing and, and the effects of COVID have really allowed us to rethink what's possible. As opposed right. to, no, we can't do that. Right. So um, next topic, in terms of mitigating security risks, right? Um, and, and when you're mitigating security risks, um, a security leader or a technology leader um, got to work with privacy compliance team and enterprise risk management team, right? Most of the times, these things are not separate teams, compliance team, privacy team, and the ERN team is just one team, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and when, when a security leader is going to them or talking to them as a stakeholder, right, uh, discussing about how to go about, you know, um, mitigating security risk, right? Uh, and this is across the environment. You know, you have risks with people, process, and technology. Um and it's always a tough conversation. I don't know for some reason why, um, from what I've seen, from, from what I've noticed. Uh, how can they make it easy? How can, they, how can a security leader can make it easy, uh, you know, for those folks? And how can those folks make it easy for the security leader? You mean like the, the, the compliance people, right, that are managing the, right, the right. risk frameworks and stuff? Right. Well, right. I, I mean – Honestly, for me, that's it's a simple thing. It's like there's no us and them, right? So right. it, it kind of goes back to, you know, where are you on the maturity spectrum as a business? You know, um, if you're more mature, you should have security by design, privacy by design and everything you do. And therefore, all of the compliance people just to get they get along for the ride. Right. Right. It's it's, it's just baked into the process and, and it works. When you're starting out, um, you don't have that luxury because you're you're doing more of the formative stuff. So you know, risk and compliance can actually help drive some of the security initiatives. Ironically, right? Because in order for you to um, you know not be exposed to breach or other things that could be potentially bad, the risk and compliance people will actually be able to show you uh, this is an a level of risk that's probably not something the business wants to tolerate. And then right. the business will come back and hopefully there'll be some kind of funding. And so then, then it becomes closed loop. But when you have a program that's fairly mature where you've done that foundational stuff effectively, it just becomes a checkpoint, right? Then that's part of the maturity model too. It's like regular checkpoints, monthly, weekly, whatever it is. You go back, you look at your risk register, you look at the areas of, of, of continuing risk where projects are ongoing and you map them. And if there's still gaps, that's an opportunity to bring the risk people into the equation so that everything has the right lens through which that you 
sort of assign priorities and, and you know, allocate funds for your projects? For sure, uh, for sure, Dave. Hope uh, hope they come together um, and fix uh, business risks. And at the other, and at the end of the day, um, you know, all risks are business risks, and there is no such things as security risks and privacy risks. That's right. And I, and I think that's where the mindset comes from, where they start thinking subconsciously, not consciously, subconsciously, when they start thinking security risks, privacy risks, technology risks, I think that's where the mindset forms, where they start thinking us versus them, right? Right, so, right. So um, with that being said, the next topic, uh, one of my favorite topics, favorite questions, uh, is diversity and inclusion fully represented fully represented um, in, in technology and security industry? And I, we all know there's some gaps. There are some gaps, right? And and what are your thoughts on how can they be fixed um, as we go forward? Well, I would, for me personally, I mean, this has been an area where I've I've been, um, uh, you know, very focused in trying to make sure that I have a well-rounded team. You know, I'm I'm a big proponent of encouraging um, women in security in general. Um, it's an area where obviously we're we're a bit light in the technology space in general. I think we don't have a, as high a ratio of women as would be nice to have, I think, for, for balancing out, right? I mean, just think about the general population, 50-50, right? We're nowhere near that in right. terms of the distribution in both technology and security can be even worse. So, you know, I've always been a big fan of supporting um, that kind of diversity. My teams have always been you know, incredibly diverse. I, I've always had, you know, highly distributed teams all around the world. So I've had teams in uh, India, um, in Philippines, uh, Singapore. Um, I've had uh, people in, in parts of Asia. I've had people in the UK and Europe and all over the place. So, um, you know, when you think about that, that level of, of cultural inclusion, I think is really important to kind of get a good melting pot of ideas. Right. right. Um, it's not really about sort of men, women, you know, Asia, European, Latin American or American. It's really about, you know, we have excellent people who understand security in right. geographical areas that have their own specific concerns about data handling and right. regulatory needs. Right. Right. And when you get all of these people together, um, a really interesting thing happens. You know, you, you can't be closed minded. Right. Your perspective right. changes just by virtue of the fact that people are making you aware of things that you're not exposed to. So uh, I'm a huge fan of that. And I think that, you know, everyone that's in my position should be looking at that as a model to try to further improve their their threat landscape awareness, because you'll just get it by virtue of having a very diverse workforce. For sure, and uh, and hope we uh, we as a community can fix all these uh, gaps as soon as we can. Yeah. Um, with that being said, uh, the next topic I had was, I think we have seen all sorts of cyber threats. Um, at least I've seen quite a few uh, different ones. Um, so, what type of cyber threats do you anticipate in the future? Um, I mean, I, I think it's still going to be the same, you know, set of, uh, of, of threats that we see currently, right? It, basically, it's, it's all of the data specific stuff, right? right. Um, and, and, you know, like I said before, that the key things that you have to be concerned about are threats that are already in your network right. and the threats of people. Right. As long as we have people, we're always going to have threats because for whatever reason, people just love to click on links and emails and they love to go to websites that have uh, juicy content that just might be a watering hole for malware. Right. 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 So <laughs> until we we fundamentally change human behavior to get around that. Uh, yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, we're going to have uh, gainful employment for the foreseeable future. <laughs> For sure, Dave. Yeah, I mean, I, for sure, for sure. Um, so I enjoyed this podcast, Dave. 
and I'm pretty sure you enjoyed it too. This was a great conversation. Oh yeah, yeah, it was fun. Um, and and I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, my listeners and our listeners will be very uh, happy, and I hope they they learn something from this podcast. And I know I know I learned something today. So <laughs> <laughs> so so that being said, thank you, um, and and I, I hope you have a nice day. Thank All you. All right, Dave. thank you. Yeah, sounds thank good. You. Appreciate yep. it. Appreciate it. Okay. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should, too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com.